Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the program. And I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. And I've got Dave Keita with me again today, always helping me out. Thanks so much, Dave. Glad to be here, Doc. Thanks for being here. Are you a soccer fan, Dave? I am, I am. Yeah, yeah. So we've got some exciting World Cup uh, action coming up. Yesterday was so exciting. I didn't think Croatia had a chance of beating England, but they totally pulled it off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, in some other soccer news, in addition to the World Cup final match that's coming up, all 12 members and the coach of the Wild Boars soccer team from Thailand were rescued, and uh, they were all in a flooded cave where they were trapped for almost three weeks. And following a successful but uh, complex international rescue operation that involved hundreds of experts from around the world, the members of the team are recovering now in the hospital. So just really amazing. Um, The last of the group to emerge from the cave were four Thai Navy SEALs, including a doctor who stayed with the team for a week after their discovery. And the final rescue took uh, nine hours from the time the divers entered the cave to bringing out the last of the boys and their coach. And sadly, we did lose uh, one of the rescue divers who died during the rescue efforts. Uh, We want to be be sure to honor his sacrifice and send prayers to his family and his colleagues. And to help us understand more about this heroic rescue and the possible psychological and emotional effects of being trapped in that cave for almost three weeks, we'll hear from Boston-based paramedic and critical incident responder, who's also a rescue diver, Tom Greenhall. And he'll help us to understand the challenges of the rescue from the diver's point of view and what we might expect to see in the aftermath of this critical incident uh, that, for the most part, did have a happy ending. And also on today's show, we'll learn about the possible effects of trauma on the developing brains of the rescued boys from neuroscience expert Dr. Kenneth Wesson. And we'll hear from both Tom Greenhall and Dr. Kenneth Wesson, but first... Living Wealth, Dr. Peg, is brought to you every Thursday from 1 to 2 Mountain on KLZ 560. And you can also listen online at drpegradio.com. And we're also streaming live on Facebook today. And again, both of my guests are on telephone, on the telephone, so you you just get to see my face today. Um, I guess that's why they call it Facebook. Um, But make sure that you like my Dr. Peg page and that you uh, follow the page so that you, you can be notified when we're live on Facebook. And uh, we couldn't do any of this without our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education training and has the only evidence-based program of its kind with an accredited CEU. And with SSI Guardian, you're getting the right training, the right equipment, and correct action plans. And contact them today at SSIGuardian.com and be sure to tell them Dr. Pegg sent you. Well, again, as we are approaching the World Cup Finals, soccer is on everybody's mind, but the world has been captivated by a different soccer story, the dramatic rescue of the wild boars soccer team from a flooded cave in Thailand. And to help us understand just how amazing this rescue really was from a diver's point of view, I'm happy to have back on the show Tom Greenhall. And Tom Greenhall has been diving since 1987. We won't say how old that makes him. 
and he became a corporate trainer for Dive Rescue International in 1990. And as an experienced rescue driver, rescue diver instructor, Tom is also a paramedic and retired police lieutenant who's a faculty instructor for the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. Tom Green, Greenhall, thanks so much for being with us again on the program. Welcome. Hi, Doc. Thank you, and thank you for having me back. Yeah, it must have been really um, kind of nail-biting and exciting at the t same time for you, watching with the rest of the world about this uh, this rescue that took place. Yeah, this was an outstanding job by all those folks involved in that. Very high risk, very high focus. It was required. A lot of opportunity for things to go wrong, and they just did an outstanding job. And although they did lose one of their own in the process, overall they did a phenomenal job of it. Yeah, absolutely, and every single... Uh, person from the team, including the coach, was rescued alive, and um, that's just really uh, incredible. And again, our hearts go out to and our prayers to uh, our the lost Navy SEAL, um, ex-Navy SEAL diver who was there helping. Um, now, professionally, Tom, as a police officer, as a paramedic, as a responder to critical incidents, uh, you tend to show up after um, bad things have happened to people. Um, but fortunately, in this case of the flooded cave in Thailand, we do have a, a happy ending for the most part. Absolutely. I mean, as a responder, whether it be as public safety in terms of municipalities or state agencies, or in this case, a lot of federal military response, the opportunity to do an operation where you save lives is just huge. It's one of the, the goals of the careers that we walk into, and to actually be able to do that, that's a huge milestone for everybody that was there that day. Absolutely. Not that day, but the whole thing. Absolutely, the whole yeah. I think it was 18, 19 days, almost three weeks. And so really a, just a miracle even that they were found, let alone rescued, in the middle of the monsoon rainy season. They had expected to, had planned to initially have them waited out and then realized the water was rising, the water was still coming, and they had to seize the moment. Now, you're a rescue diver and a trainer for Dive Rescue International. Uh, talk about the amount of preparation that the rescue divers, um, the Navy SEALs, uh, must have to pull off this kind of complex um, collaborative uh, rescue mission? Uh, their training goes well beyond the average, you know, municipal or state public safety diver. Their evolutions and their training is just an ongoing, I mean, it's their profession. And so they dedicate their lives to being a top-notch at what they do. Uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to train people that were Navy and Marine Corps divers, and I never had a chance to work with a group that was so professional and so skilled in my life. It was just amazing to watch them in the process, the way they think, the way they act. Uh, they were the right people to do this work by far. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what what's your understanding of everything that had to take place uh, for this rescue mission to have been a success? Um, we all read the reports, and I'm I'm hoping you can give us a little bit of insight. You were not there, but that with all of your experience, you can appreciate some of these um, obstacles they faced. They they were facing fast moving shallow water, um, passing through very narrow flooded passages, uh, very dark with almost no visibility razor-sharp stones. Talk about how challenging that is for the divers. It's a, it's a mental game for them as much as a physical game. You know, a lot of people will work really hard at the physical fitness level that is required to do an operation like this, working against currents in tight places. Um, many of the places they work, they would probably have to take off their gear, pass it ahead of them, and then swim behind the gear. 
So a lot of places that this whole operation could have gone badly for them. Mm-hmm. And they train for that. And really what the key to the success tends to be is the mental component that's often overlooked. You know, what type of mindset, warrior mindset in this case, to pull this together to say stay calm despite all these risks and stay mission-focused to get these kids in the coach out. Wow. Yeah, I know. um, I'm sure it's a self-selecting field because I don't think I'd want to be in in the water (laughs) where uh, narrow passages and where you can't even barely see your hand in front of your face, but that is what you guys train for. Yeah, I mean, many times over the years, um, whatever I'm looking for, you find it by bumping into it (laughs) because you have no visibility most often. And so your tactile sense you're relying on heavily as you try to do this type of work. And you trust your team. That's the other Mm. big component of particularly this operation. It's a team effort. There's no single person that makes this thing work. Absolutely. And and that, I I think, played into as well their survival is they were a team and they could lean on one another for support. And we'll talk in a moment about the aftermath, the psychological, the emotional aftermath, because in addition to being a rescue diver, you also are a faculty member with the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation and also paramedic, retired police lieutenant. So you understand the aftermath in these critical incidents. So we'll get, we'll get to that. I want to talk about that. Uh, listeners, I'm speaking with Tom Greenhall, and uh, we're talking about the dramatic, amazing uh, cave rescue of the Thai soccer team. Uh, just really miraculous that they survived and then were able to all be rescued. Now, one of the things that became problematic, Tom, and, and um, accounted for the death of the one um, uh, dive rescuer uh, who did perish was that the oxygen levels had fallen to 15%. And I learned uh, that the optimal range of oxygen needed in the air a person breathes in order to maintain normal function is between 19.5% and 23.5%. And the oxygen levels had fallen to 15%. Uh, And in fact, the um, rescue diver who did die, uh, he himself ran out of oxygen on his way back to the entrance of the cave after delivering the oxygen to the team uh, who was trapped inside. And so... um, this whole notion of um, oxygen is so critically important to rescue divers. Talk about that. Yeah, and actually, and it's one of the fallacies, the tanks actually holds compressed air, not mm-hmm. oxygen. Okay. And, and so everyone believes that's what it is. It's an oxygen tank. It's not. It's an air tank. And depending on depth, the composition of that air can change, relatively speaking. So you can have, theoretically, a higher level or, of oxygen within the tank at depth. And so that's one of the things we have to be careful of it. If we're going down too deep, and I'm not sure how this laid out as far as the cave was, but if you're too deep under pressure, then that can give you a higher oxygen concentration relative to the surface that puts you at risk for some medical conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's always well, a constraint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the one thing we'd always train in diving, we like to have a clear, unrestricted access to the surface. That's our safety net, if you will. But in a case like this, that's not an option, and they were quite deep within the system that the thing that we utilize the most often as a emergency bailout procedure, if you will, if we had to, is not an option yet. Right. And so, you know, if if you run short on gas, right, the, the compressed gas within the tank, you're on your own, and it's usually a very poor outcome, unfortunately. Um, any type of penetration dive is extremely high risk. Very, very high yeah. And they were actually um, swimming. Uh, two divers accompanied each person 
uh, to help them navigate. Uh, the boys actually had to learn how to use those um, oxygen masks uh, in order to be rescued, in order, order to get out. But two divers accompanied each boy. Um, the rescuers held the boys' oxygen tanks in front of them, air tanks in front of them, and swam through submerged holes. And so exactly what you're saying, there was no surface <laughs> to be able to just float right back up, swim right back up. And that's very difficult in itself to take someone that, you know, has been deprived of food for a couple of weeks. Mm. And now you're having to teach them how to basically dive in the dark. That we, we take a long time to get mm. people that want to do that yeah. ready. Um, I've done some penetration dives around the uh, vessels that have been flipped over in the water. The capsized vessel extrication type thing. Where we go in and same type of thing. You might have a boat operator that gets trapped inside their boat. And you go on and you dress them in a full face mask, so at least we're not worried about that. And they're attached to your system and you bring them out. So it's a similar concept, although here the separate tank was a better deal just because of the way they had to pass through certain passageways and such within the cave system. Yeah, like threading threading a, a needle. Uh, well, the team did make it out safely except, uh, um, unfortunately, the one rescue diver. Um, they're now in the hospital, um, but as, as a faculty member who teaches critical incident stress management, and you've been on scene at many critical incidents over the years, the decades, what are some of the concerns in terms of their psychological and emotional response? Having been trapped uh, and, and for so long in such an arduous process to, to be rescued um, for the boys and for the first responders and the, and the rescuers, uh, let's talk about the, the boys and the team first, but I also want to hear about um, kind of the professionals, first responders who were there. What's the process for them for recovery? I would say with the boys, I think a lot of it's going to be what are the resilience factors for them. Obviously, being exposed to a trauma like this is very significant. You know, the, I'm sure sometimes they thought it was a hopeless situation and thought they may perish within the cave. I'm sure that thought floated through everyone's mind. But to come out the backside in a successful way, such as this, where they all emerged, you end up with a like a team bonding, much like a special operations unit, this type of thing. And it's a long process that they were together, you know, a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And that's going to actually be helpful to their recovery, that bond that they have created within their group. Now, as long as people, as we try to say, this is a bad moment in your life, don't make it your defining moment right. of life. So what well, we would encourage those that are around these kids to not make it that those are the kids trapped in the cave and use that as how they're identified because then they start to stick to the bad story, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's really good advice because we probably do have a tendency to call, you know, to say that, the cave boys, you know, or um, maybe it would be more uh, helpful and help build their resilience to refer to them as the wild boars um, because they were already a team before this uh, tragic situation happened to them. Uh, but, uh, yep. yeah, really trying to support the, the fact they survived, that they're resilient, they have their whole lives ahead of them. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I find with people is we underestimate a person's personal resiliency level. Mm. You know, there's an assumption that everyone's going to have a problem as a result of this experience. That may not be the case. These, you know, these kids may be very, very happy that they survived it, they're alive, they're together, mm -hmm. and they're going to continue to play soccer. I, you know, I think it needs to be a case-by-case -case basis. 
and not to prejudge where they're going to be. Right. Be kind of monitoring them, if you will. Right. That's great advice because not everyone who's exposed to a trauma will develop uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, they'll, they may be very resilient and bounce back, and it depends on the support they're receiving and, and how they are perceived and received by the community. Uh, let's talk briefly about uh, the first responders having lost one of their, their comrades uh, in the dive rescue team. Uh, we have about a minute left. Um, what, what are some things that we need to be, they would need to be mindful of? It's, they need to watch for each other. Um, line of duty death ranks number one on our top ten international critical incident list. The worst type of incident that can occur within the public safety military community. Mm. So that being said, same type of thing. It's going to impact people to some degree. How it impacts them, everybody's different. Right. But as a group, the cohesion, keeping people together, they're a special operations unit, so there's a high level of resiliency. When they lose one of their own, though, it's a high level of hurt. Absolutely. It's the ability to maintain that unit cohesion is essential. The upside for them is they save 13 lives, and uh, that is going yeah. to be a major mitigating factor in how they move forward and how they value the loss of that person's life. He gave his life for sacrifice to save 13 others, and yeah. I think that's going to help them a lot. That's awesome. They're all heroes, including the one who perished. And uh, Tom Greenhall, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and experience with us today. Thank you for having me, and if I can be of any help, don't hesitate to let me, let me know. Sure will. Thanks, Tom. That was Tom Greenhall, paramedic, retired police lieutenant, and corporate trainer for Dive Rescue International. Just really a miracle uh, that they all survived, and um, just, a, just a wonderful testament to the resilience of, uh, of humanity. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, what weighs only three pounds but holds the key to everything you do? I'm talking about your brain. Next up, neuroscience expert Dr. Kenneth Wesson explains how trauma affects our brains. Stay with us. We'll be back. I'm taking my own freedom, putting it in my soul, singing loud strong. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive, evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. What if a psychologist with years of experience wrote a book revealing secrets that therapists know but usually don't share? And what if that book provided effective strategies for experiencing lasting change? That's exactly what you get with Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark's book, Do Something Different for a Change, an insider's guide to what your therapist knows but may not tell you. Celebrating 10 years in print, this self-help classic shares critical insights to help you understand and overcome the three common barriers to change, heal your emotional pain and emptiness, and strengthen your connection to your true self and others. In the easy-to-understand, down-to-earth style she's known for, Dr. Pegg clearly communicates fundamental principles and strategies for change and personal transformation. Read Do Something Different for a Change today and have a better tomorrow. Go to drpegradio.com slash books to purchase your copy today.
Safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit SSIGuardian.com. Welcome back, everyone. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg, and I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. We're in the second half of the year, and if you're like most people, you may have lost sight of your goals. Well, it's not too late to get unstuck and establish new habits to get you back on track. If you're finally ready to make the changes you've been meaning to make in your life, contact me today to learn more about my unique approach to personal transformation that's based on the latest psychological research and behavior change strategies. All coaching is done by telephone, making it easy and efficient to experience the lasting change you desire. Schedule a complimentary appointment to learn more at drpegradio.com slash coaching. Uh, well, we're going to be talking about the brain. Dave, how much do you know about your brain? Not very much. <laughs> Everyone has a brain, but most of us don't know too much about how it functions. And if you're a parent, I know you're a parent, Dave, yeah. If you're a parent, if you're a teacher, or you just want to maximize your own performance, shouldn't you know how your brain learns best? Well, I'm excited to have back on the show today neuroscience and brain expert Dr. Kenneth Wesson. And Dr. Kenneth Wesson is a keynote speaker and educational consultant for preschool through university-level institutions and organizations. And he speaks throughout the world on the neuroscience of learning and methods for creating classrooms and learning environments that are brain considerate. Dr. Wesson, thanks so much for being back with me on the program. Welcome. Thanks for having me back. Well, you know you're one of my husband's favorite guests, right? <laughs> well, he's one of my favorite people. <laughs> I hope he's I hope he's listening and he'll for sure listen to the recording if he's not listening live right now. Well, we were talking in the first segment, uh, Dr. Wesson, about the amazing cave rescue of the Thai soccer team. And the story did have a happy ending for the most part. One of the rescue divers did perish, but everyone else made it out safely. Uh, the boys and their coach uh, survived quite a traumatic event. Um, I wanted to talk with you about the effects of this level of trauma on the brain, uh, especially the developing brain. The, these boys were between the ages of 11 and 16, and their coach was only 25 years old. Uh, how does this kind of trauma affect our brain? Well, for younger children, uh, and it turns out to be the younger you are, the more resilient your brain is in terms of recovery. There's also another important factor, what that happens to be, when there's an event that takes place that's sponsored by other human beings, that's more difficult to get over than an event that's also that's sponsored by nature, such as a flood or a fire. Uh, when someone feels attacked by another individual, those are the traumas more, more difficult to get over, and those are the traumas that linger much longer. Wow. So there, there's some hope here that this was kind of a natural, they, they were exploring the cave, but what then happened was just by virtue of the nature of caves and the rain and the weather. Yes, and it was also a fun event for the boys mm. as opposed to something that began tragically and then tapered off from there. So this began as a fun event, and it had a good positive ending. 
there is a period, obviously, in between, about three weeks, when it was all touch and go. For, for young children, the good part is that, as I said, they're very resilient, and as they move on to new ventures, they have a tendency to put that behind themselves far better than adults do. Mm-hmm. And, my and previous, sometimes when we... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, my previous guest was saying that we really shouldn't refer to them as those kids who are stuck in the cave that really let them have a, a different identity that speaks to the resilience you're speaking about. Oh, Absolutely. If you think about any personal tragedy that you've experienced, the more you think about it, you're what we call the body brain, and that's the whole, your body and your brain, you re-experience that event. And the more you re-experience an event, the more traumatic it gets as you continue to re-experience that event mentally. And you'll find that your body goes through the exact same reactions as it did during the event itself. And as you continue to reprocess those events without letting them go, that's when you begin to have the long-term effects of stress. Mm. Wow. Now, in terms of, um, you said the younger you are, the more resilient, the less the effect um, that this kind of trauma can have. Uh, How old are we once the brain is finished developing? It sounds like, on the one hand, because their brain is still developing and they're young, that's a good thing, uh, but how long does it take for our brains to finish developing? Well, it's a very interesting question, mm-hmm. and we've had different answers to the same question over the past few decades. Uh, we used to say that the brain was fully developed at about age four or five because that was pretty much the same size as an, as an adult brain. Then because of the chemical changes, the maturational changes, the growth, the renovation of the frontal lobes of the brain, we said that during puberty, the brain goes through that renovation, and that's when the brain is truly developed thereafter. Then it was said that it's probably closer to early 20s. But now the more recent estimates are that the brain matures in women during mid-20s and men during late-20s. And one gentleman out of Harvard is now suggesting that the brain actually takes up, uh, it fully matures and stops its full development during the mid-40s. Oh, boy. But this is also why every car company in the U.S. has taken some of this research, and they determined that no one should rent a car from them until they are age 25. And that's using the research on 25 as the approximate years when the brain is fully developed and it has fully matured. Well, if it actually is 40, as this one per- researcher believes, we're really in trouble in terms of renting cars, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, hopefully they will move, move the age up. But um, in terms of how the brain continues to develop and build rapid connections, uh, those continue to the mid-40s. Wow. That's... But in terms of the major changes that occur inside the brain, they usually culminate somewhere in the late to mid-20s. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that, that there are still some connections being formed later than we thought can be a benefit if you were to have a head injury of some kind. There would be hope that you could um, establish some new connections, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we used to say, and this was in every neurology textbook, that the brain produced no new neurons after we were born. Mm-hmm. But Rusty Gage at the Scripps Institute for Behavioral Research in La Jolla, California, actually harvested the brains of men who were cancer patients 
and these are men between the ages of 57 and 72. Uh, cancer patients are injected with a chemical called bromodeoxyuridine, BRDU, and what the BRDU does is it actually tracks the spread of cells during the process of mitosis. So they were actually trying to see where the cancer was spreading, but they actually discovered that the brain cells were actually reproducing in men between ages 57 and 72. This didn't upset the apple cart. This upset the whole shopping mall in terms of brain research because now we know that throughout your entire lifetime, you're producing new brain cells. And so the question becomes, how do you produce new brain cells? How do you connect those brain cells throughout a lifetime so that it does increase memory, does increase opportunities for new learning, and helps us remember the past? Mm. Well, that, that really is fascinating because we have been um, told that um, uh, until the brain has finished developing, we see characteristic behavior in teenagers, for example, and even young adults if, if some of that brain development is, is uh, still happening at 25 and older. Um, how does that kind of um, incomplete development uh, in teenagers manifest? What, what kinds of behaviors do we see in teenagers that we can connect to the fact that, yeah, their brains are still making those connections and still developing? Yeah, well, one of the most visible is uh, the frontal lobes have more connections during puberty from the frontal lobes back to the emotional centers, the limbic systems in the brain. But prior to that, there are more connections from the limbic system to the frontal lobes, and that's why kids are very emotional. But during the latter stages of puberty, and it is during the late teens that we now see kids become a little more rational and less emotional. There are some spikes, and we do see some emotional outbursts, but that's part of the process of making that transition in the brain. But the areas of the frontal lobe responsible for judgment, for long-term planning, for postponing um, pleasure, for controlling impulses, those are the types of things that we now gain more control of as we approach 25. But during the teen years, obviously, those become major problems for both parents and educators and even teens themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that accounts for some of that impulsive kind of stupid behavior we sometimes see <laughs> with teenagers ah. and, and no judgment, but perhaps might even account for why the soccer team was in the cave to begin with, right? Exploring. I'm not sure how safe those caves were. They may have gotten deeper than they, they intended to go, but... That might account for some of the some of the judgment calls that uh, young people make, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, the notion of impulsivity is one of the dominant features of the teen years, and this is why it's very common for one child to say, one teenager to say to his friends, hey, I have a good idea. What do you think? And kids move on and begin executing that idea. They think about the idea in a rational sense and through the analytical process, maybe afterwards, but not before, and certainly not when they begin to initiate that impulse. Wow. Well, I'm speaking with uh, neuroscience expert, brain expert, Dr. Kenneth Wesson. If you have a question for him about uh, how you can motivate your child over the summer, for example, our phone lines are open. You can give us a call at 303-477-5600. And, Dr. Wesson, that's got to be a lot of pressure, huh, to, uh, to be known as a brain expert. <laughs> <laughs> It certainly is because uh, we're still scratching the surface 
in terms of our understanding of the human brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. It is summertime, and the kids are out of their normal routines, their school routines. Um, what are some tips that you can offer to parents and children to help keep our brains sharp over the summer? So not just for the kids, not just for the parents who are trying to keep their kids' brains sharp, but even for us adults, uh, we're on vacation, maybe drinking a little too much tequila at the beach and <laughs> beach bumming on vacation. Uh, that can't be too good for our brains either. What, what are some tips to keep our brains sharp? Well, actually, the uh, tequila <laughs> doesn't really damage the brain unless there's very little time between drinking and not drinking. The long-term effects of alcohol begin to affect the memory systems of the brain. But uh, during the summer, one of the best things that we can do for <clears throat> both children and adults <clears throat> is to take time to read and engage in even fun activities, but fun activities that are more thought-provoking, that take time to think, games like um, cribbage, scrabble. Oh, you're showing your age, Dr. Wesson. Uh, what's oh, cribbage? Okay. Uh, 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 card I've games heard of cribbage. Yeah. yeah, card games and other games that require strategy as opposed to luck like bingo. Okay. When you engage the brain and the brain continues to think, you're actually building the brain even during what are considered fun periods of time. That's taking kids, yeah, that, taking kids to the library. Yeah. So having fun, um, and, and talk, talk a little bit more about the reading. So having a fun trip to the library or there are fun activities at the library, but uh, reading with kids today, talk about that because um, it's something that they're not as excited to do anymore as we were when we were growing up. That was fun to go pick out a great book at the library and, and get to enjoy reading that book in a nice, cool, shady spot for the afternoon. But I just don't see kids having that same enthusiasm for reading as, as we used to. Yeah, well, there are a couple of factors. Uh, one, remember the old behaviorist model of, beha of human behavior, stimulus and response. If you look at the kind of stimuli in today's environment versus a generation ago, a book was very stimulating because there weren't other stimulating activities like YouTube, television, movies, friends, Snapchat. We have a long list of stimulating things that kids can do today that didn't exist a generation ago. So to us, going to the library was one of the most delightful experiences because it opened your eyes to the, an entire world. And that was stimulating. Mm -hmm. now, now kids get that same exposure to the entire world, but they can have a visual and audio, an audio-visual audio experience by simply watching YouTube or they can pull up an entire movie. For us, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to wait until the theater was showing it, or you would have to wait until a TV program brought that rerun back maybe six months later. Today's kids can bring that up right now. Mm -hmm. On so demand. Yes. And so the kinds of stimulation that they can engage in versus what we could is an eon, we're possibly eons apart. And so many young kids find it much easier, and that gets back to how the brain is designed to look for shortcuts, which is why we look for patterns in order to understand. We find shortcuts to get that same stimulation. Movies provide it. TV provides it. We get immediate feedback from talking to friends, but uh, reading 
it's a much longer term process, just as rewarding. But yet today's world, people are looking for more of the shortcuts. Right. And this isn't just it just isn't just an indictment against kids. Adults aren't too terribly different in today's world. That's true. So how do we compete? How if we? I can see how if you have a young child, you can introduce them to reading and make um, screen time contingent upon a certain number of minutes of reading, for example. But when you have older children, when you have teenagers, and even adults, as you mentioned, how do you make that transition back to reading for those who have gotten away from it? Uh, first thing is to self-restrict the amount of time you spend on screens, and that's TV streams, video games, Facebook, iPad, telephone screen, just limiting the amount of time that you spend with screens. Uh, for many people, they, their primary interaction a generation ago used to be face-to-face friendships. Mm-hmm. Now it's FaceTime on a screen as opposed to real-world, real-time, face-to-face experiences where you have long conversations with friends, where you actually go someplace and have an experience, once again, with friends, later have opportunities to debrief on that experience. What did you think? What did I think? Uh, We don't have those kinds of experiences anymore. And that's for both children and adults. And so carving out time to do so is extremely beneficial because the brain, over time, looks to make connections. And if you've been so involved with the stimulation that you haven't had time to make connections, you don't take much with you forward. Wow. So that's a lot of information, a lot of good stuff, uh, helping our kids make a transition back to reading for those who are not reading. Um, it, it's a, it requires a little bit of um, delay of gratification. It takes a little longer to, to get there, uh, but it, it's important for our brains. I'm speaking with neuroscience and brain expert, Dr. Kenneth Wesson. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the common myths about your brain and how we can get our kids ready for school in the fall and uh, keep them stimulated over the summer so that their brains are in tip-top shape. (laughs) You can call us at 303-477-5600 if you'd like to ask Dr. Wesson a question. We'll be back after these messages. Stay with us. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. 
I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Do you ever make changes, but after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join me for a one-day, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com slash retreat. everyone and thanks for tuning in this is living well with dr peg i'm your host dr peggy mitchell clark and i've got neuroscience expert brain expert today uh dr kenneth wesson with me by telephone thanks so much for joining us dr wesson thank you and how can our listeners get in touch with you if they'd like to bring you out to their school or their organization to talk about the brain if they simply go to my website it's science master one word sciencemaster.com and you'll find a wealth of information on the brain that is designed exclusively for educators and parents. And there's also contact information on that website as well. Wonderful. Thanks so much. And I also will have a link to Dr. Wesson at my website. So if you'd like to connect with him or share this interview with a friend, or if you missed another episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, just go to drpegradio.com. And if you'd like to join our conversation or ask Dr. Wesson a question about your brain, you can give us a call now at 303-477-5600. Uh, so, Dr. Wesson, we were talking about um, digital media and screen time. And um, as we're preparing to head back to school in the fall, uh, safety is on everyone's radar as well. What's the connection between uh, feeling safe at school and being ready to learn? Because so many parents have concerns sending their kids back to school this fall. Yes, well, given the history of the past 12 months related to school shootings, there's some degree of concern, and it is indeed warranted, uh, but in some ways it's been exaggerated. We don't want kids to be too complacent, but we don't want them to become paranoid when it comes to safety. What we find is that fear has a tendency to compromise opportunities for learning. When the brain is on fear mode, the brain is more defensive than perhaps anything else. And what happens is a pint and a half of blood should flow through the brain every minute. And we have over 40,000 miles of blood vessels and capillaries. And when the brain is receiving this full complement of nutrients, minerals, oxygen, the brain is ready to learn. However, when we're under stress or if we're fearful, a, that complement of blood is reduced and some of that blood gets diverted to the large muscle groups. You've heard of the old concept, fight or flight. That's how we prepare our bodies to mm -hmm. fight or run away. But during that period, the brain is now underpowered because it's not receiving the full complement of nutrients and minerals, at which time we're now finding learning more difficult and even remembering more difficult. This is why the adults who are listening probably recall times when they've been under stress and their ability to think rationally 
to remember information and to process information and reach rational decisions was reduced dramatically. But when they left the situation and said, oh, I just give up, suddenly they are now receiving a full complement of nutrients back to the brain. Now they're suddenly remembering good solutions. But it only occurs once we're relaxed. But under stress, our ability to think is compromised. Kids in the classroom are operating by fear, spend more time looking around to make sure they're safe than they do listening to the teacher in order to learn. And if they're trying to read, they'll look at the book and then look up periodically to make sure they're safe. And as they continue to go through that cycle of reading, looking, reading, looking, they compromise their abilities to comprehend the content, which is why reading comprehension in those kinds of situations is always one of the first casualties. So feeling safe really is a prerequisite for learning um, and safe at school, but also safe in our communities. Um, we talk so much about school safety and, and yet there are many kids who are feeling unsafe at home as well. And where school used to be a sanctuary for them, now they have just as many fears at school as they do in their communities or even in their own homes. Yes, we were doing some work in New York City, and we were finding what you described to be the dominant feature for the lives of many children. They weren't afraid when they came to school any more than they were afraid when they left school. Their lives were dominated by fear. Mm. And for many of these kids, one of the first things that teachers notice is that a teacher might work with a child on Monday, on Tuesday, begin reviewing the kinds of things that occurred on Monday, and the child says, I don't remember that from Monday. When we're under stress and fear, our ability to remember is reduced dramatically. And I was doing some work in Israel and the working with faculty members from the universities who teach who train teachers who teach children in the Palestinian territories. Mm. And we spent a half day on the whole issue of trauma, stress, and poverty on the developing brain. And many of those educators constantly complained that children who they work with on one day, the following day, where a child may have done well the previous day, suddenly the child does not remember and can't make the kind of connections he made the previous day. And it had more to do with the stress and fear factors than anything else. Wow, that's incredible. Now, there's so much talk uh, about uh, uh, interventions like mindfulness is something that's really being touted as a, a skill that even children should be learning and practicing, and it makes such a difference with our emotional well-being, mental health. And I wonder if you cannot um, change this, the situation in, in a child's community in their neighborhood where they're not feeling safe, or if there are threats at school where they don't feel safe, um, is mind, practicing mindfulness or those other kinds of cognitive interventions, would that be uh, effective to help children feel safe enough to learn? Oh, absolutely. If you think of any problem that people are experiencing associated with, a, with mental health, it's almost always somehow associated with attention. It's what is it that you're paying attention to? If you're paying attention to the elements in the environment that may be threatening, then you will be impacted by fear constantly. If you're able to, through mindfulness or social-emotional learning, develop strategies by which you can focus on an event that's going to be beneficial, like reading, 
and put the others behind you, at least temporarily, then your opportunities for learning increase dramatically. And that's why we say mindfulness is extremely helpful, social-emotional learning programs extremely helpful, giving kids time even for meditation is mm-hmm. helpful, teaching children relaxation strategies. And as you know, when you're trying to remember for a test, oftentimes because of the stress after the test, you say, oh, I just remembered the answer to that one. Oh, I just now remember the answer to that one. When we're under stress, our memory is compromised. And teaching children relaxation strategies improves their ability both to learn and to remember. Wow, that's amazing. Well, and we know also, go ahead, Dr. Wesson. Oh, and the sad part is that most schools spend more more time on teaching children content that's going to be on the test Mm. rather than strategies for how to be successful during the test. Wow. Well, that's good information because that's something we can easily make a change with in schools and at home, uh, teaching children how to um, manage their stress uh, before a test, uh, test anxiety, but also teaching them how to manage stress at home. And I don't, I, this isn't verified. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I, I saw one report that stated that the uh, coach with the soccer team in, in Thailand that he taught them mindfulness and meditation, I should say, while they were in the cave and that so that they could, you know, cope with the stress of of being trapped and be able to pass the time. I'm not sure if that's a verified report or not, but that's really an interesting application in the midst of a a stressful scenario or somewhere where you don't feel safe uh, to learn stress management um, practices. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that would explain extremely beneficial mm-hmm. if he if he knew those strategies and could share them with the youngsters but they could deploy those strategies immediately uh, that would increase the first ability first to survive but second to uh, get over right absolutely the, the, the stressful event much later mm-hmm. and, uh, we even see this issue of stress play itself out at home when parents are working with children when a child has homework a parent might sit down at the kitchen table and help a child with the homework, at least attempting to, but as the child struggles, the parent gets more irritated and says, come on, Peggy, you know this. Peggy, you're not thinking. The more a parent makes the situation more stressful and increases the tension level, the more difficulty the child has to, the more difficult it is for the child to learn and to perform. But what we oftentimes notice is that parents who are extremely stressed as they help a child with homework, they'll get up from the table out of frustration, and then five minutes later, the child will say, oh, mommy, mommy, I got it now. And wow. it's only once the parent has left, and we call that a parentectomy. And once the parent <laughs> is removed from the situation, oftentimes children are far more able to learn. Wow. And this plays itself out in the classroom as well. When a child feels less stressed, his ability to learn, remember, and apply himself increases Tenfold. Wow. Well, and I had a, a teacher in the first grade that I was afraid of. And so I can imagine um, this applies to teachers as well. If, if they have a style that's very um, anxious or makes the child anxious or they're angry or they're punitive or they're critical, that that can raise that child's anxiety and their brain shuts down and it's hard to remember. It's hard to perform. 
Yes. Well, even even worse, if, if we think about the uh, 1970s when we had the school integration, there were cases where there were teachers who were instructed from the colleges of education to make certain that classroom management was always paramount. And so they ran their classroom as a tight ship, and most of the kids were afraid. However, during the integration period, when African-American students went to integrated schools, oftentimes the teachers were nice to the other children, but not nice to the African-American children, at which point the stress level increased dramatically just for those kids. And so when a teacher is mean, as we used to say, to everybody, it's far more easy to accept that situation than it is when a teacher, when you feel as though the teacher is directing their animus towards you. And that's when children have difficulty learning and remembering. Mm. Wow. So again, this is how brain science helps us to help children learn and even helps us to parent our children more effectively. I'm speaking with yes, neuroscience expert and brain expert, Dr. Kenneth Wesson. And you can call if you have a question for Dr. Wesson about your brain, 303-477-5600. Uh, Dr. Wesson? Yes, I was also going to say, uh, for parents who are feeling nervous and tense as they're trying to help a child with homework, one of the very best things that you can do is to take your child for a walk after they've discussed the concept, review the concept, Take that child for a walk outdoors, where the, and then give a chance, give the child a chance to talk about what he understands about the concept, what he doesn't understand about the concept. Help him or her fill in those gaps and make those connections. And what you'll find is that children will learn far more and remember more from having that experience than from sitting at the kitchen table, where the parent is supposedly helping the child learn. Mm. When we stand up, we add 5% more glucose to the brain, which fuels the brain. By moving, we add 15% more glucose to the brain. And when a child walks and talks, he has at least a 15% or more cognitive advantage than sitting at the table alone. Wow. That's good. Well, let's talk about some of the brain myths that many of us have, Dr. Wesson. You were on the show before talking about the myth that we only use 10% of our brains. And so um, for my listeners who heard that program, uh, they should know that that is a myth. We use all of our brains, right? Not just 10%. <laughs> and we're making those connections as, as our brain develops and matures. And, and as you shared, even into our older years, our middle-aged years and older years, we're still making those connections, so that's good news. Another uh, common myth that's kind of related to that is this idea that some people are left-brained versus right-brained. I actually just had someone reference that uh, when speaking with me uh, just the other day, uh, talking about the left side of my brain being engaged and, and you know, the right side, the more creative side, um, you know, being engaged. Is that a myth? Are we, or can we be left-brained or right-brained in terms no. of being creative versus analytical or um, having certain personality traits? Well, not only is it a myth, it's rather silly to anyone involved in neuroscience. Okay. Uh, the, two, the two hemispheres are connected by a structure called a corpus callosum, and the corpus callosum is the primary connector that sends information from one hemisphere to the other. And it sends over 4 billion bits of information from one hemisphere to the other every second, making your brain truly a 
whole brain. The brain does have some specialization in each hemisphere, but it's shared with the other hemisphere via the corpus callosum. Neither hemisphere is ever quiescent while the other one takes over a task and the other waits to be called in at a later date. They're both contributing information, something like reading and language arts. The left hemisphere is controlling some of the more discrete elements of language if you're reading, but the right hemisphere is introducing or processing concepts like creativity, some of the connections, some of the more underlying thought patterns associated with how you pull the elements of the story together to make sense. Just knowing the words is what the British call learning how to bark the words. Barking the words doesn't doesn't help you contribute to understanding how a story comes together. Uh, even things like the concept of prosody. If I said today is Tuesday versus today is Tuesday, the second is a question. And by understanding the language, prosody suddenly you know that it it is a question. But that's the prosody is the property of the right hemisphere. Hmm. The individual words are the left hemisphere, but they come together to give you an understanding of whether that was a question I posed or a statement I made. So, so both left, left and right yeah. are, are involved in that. Uh, let's talk about another, one more um, myth before we have to go. Are, are male and female brains different? <laughs> uh, Dr. Clark, that would be a whole show. <laughs> yes, uh, yes they, they, are, they are quite different, um, but... Well, first, all brains start off in utero as female brains. Mm. But after about five to six weeks, the testosterone-determining factor kicks into male brains and actually creates a different brain. Okay. Well, you're hearing the music, Dr. Wesson. We will have to have a whole show on the differences between the male and female brain, uh, unless that is a myth. It, they are different or they're not? The quick, the quick answer. Yes, they are different, okay. but the differences complement one another. Okay, great. Well, that's good news. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Wesson. Always a pleasure to have you on the show teaching us well, all about our brains. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, listeners, thanks for tuning in to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Pegg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.